0: have to clear the decks. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come again to this very important time where we open up your word and we anticipate, Father, you speaking to us through it by your spirit. This morning, Father, we have offered prayers, we've sung praises to you, we've sought to worship you in spirit and truth And, Father, now we ask that you would feed us from your word, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our hands for the tasks that you have given to us, and that, Father, in all in all, that you would glorify your name. We pray that Christ would be lifted up this morning, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. A question which you should all know the answer to is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you would please respond out loud with the answer. And you can do this at home as well. What, the question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is just that. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the Shorter Catechism, there are two Actually, there's more than two, but two of the scripture references given to support this answer are, first of all, 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one, where the Apostle Paul writes, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As we look and we open the pages of scripture, we find that scripture declares that not only is it man's chief end to glorify God, but it is clearly and unequivocally the primary pers- purpose of all that God has created to bring glory to him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19:1 that heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. I'd like to go one more very logical and very biblical step further and declare that history, and all the events of history have a doxological purpose. Now, doxological is a big word, but all it means is glory. It's a Greek term, and it means that everything that happens, everything that God has ordained, every facet, every component of history, every event in your life and in my life has a doxological purpose, a purpose to glorify God. In Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 11, God said, For my own sake... For my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. The Apostle Paul, when he came to the end of Romans 9-11, through through where he unfolds the sovereign work of God, he wrapped that section up by saying, For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever." Amen. Our passage this morning is found in the first book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Um, By way of very, very brief introduction, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossian believers because false teachers were teaching heresy concerning the person and the work of Christ. Now, it's not our purpose this morning to go into the specifics of that false teaching, but in summary... This false teaching that was found in Colossae diminished the person of Christ, made him less than who he truly is, God come in flesh, God incarnate, and it also diminished the sufficiency of Christ's saving work. So to counter this, Paul spends the first two chapters of Colossians reminding these believers, and us as well, that Jesus is indeed God incarnate and that he is the all-sufficient Savior as seen through his death and his resurrection. The doctrine of who Jesus is and what he has done by his life, his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection, is the sum and the substance of the gospel. And as such, the person and work of Christ is of vital importance to the salvation that the Bible declares. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then he could not have accomplished full and final salvation for all those who trust in him. I'm going to propose this morning, even with that emphasis, that very justifiable emphasis that Paul gives, I'm going to propose to you this morning that Paul's primary purpose, even behind the purposes that we have already discussed Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter to the Colossians and the ultimate reason that it has been preserved in Holy Scripture for us today was not and is not for the sole reason of correcting errors in doctrine. I want you to please understand that I am in no way diminishing the importance of sound doctrine, particularly concerning the person and work of Christ. Throughout the entirety of Scriptures, there are warnings given against false teachers, The pastoral epistles in particular stress the importance of teaching sound doctrine. Timothy was exhorted, teach sound doctrine. But what I'd like you to consider this morning is that Paul ultimately wrote this letter so that the Colossians and you and I today might not only know and believe the truth about the person and work of Christ, but ultimately that we who have been redeemed by Christ would live the truth about Christ to the glory of God. These two elements, truly believing the truth and living the truth, are inextricably connected. If you genuinely believe the truth, you will also live the truth. You may have heard the saying, you are what you eat. Can I also take that in? adapt it somewhat, and say you are what you believe. God saves sinners so that they might live transformed lives to his glory. We will get to Colossians, I'm getting there. But in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, catch that, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Pastor Wes, and we know from experience, he's reminded us that that does not mean that Christians do not sin. But what it does mean is that those who truly place their faith in Christ will struggle. They will fight against sin and they will grow in godly living. It is both the, the duty and the privilege of every person who has been saved by the grace of God to live doxologically. And what does that mean? Very simply. To declare the glory of God by believing, declaring, and living the truth about God, sin, salvation, and sanctification in everyday life. I'm going to ask you, and this is the reason why I came to this passage. I know that some of you have heard me teach this passage last summer in Sunday school, adult Sunday school. But when Wes asked me to preach, this is the first passage that came to my mind. And and I'll tell you why. And I'd like you to consider this as well. Do we, at this present time, do we not have a very unique opportunity to declare the glory of God in our society, in our culture? Do we not have a unique and great opportunity to glorify God by being salt and light in an increasingly dark world? A time when the seared consciences of men and the rejection of God ordained authority is very evident in every part of society. A time when fear is great and is growing, and it seems that hopelessness and helplessness is increasing. Is not this a time when the light of the gospel, heard in word and seen through the transformed lives of believers, is this not a time when that is critically needed? As we draw our attention to the first chapter of the book of Colossians, in verses 3 through 8, Paul gave thanks to God for this group of believers. In summary, Epaphras, who had founded the church in Colossae, Paul was not the founder of this church. Epaphras told Paul of the, this group of believers' love for the Lord Jesus and the evidence of spiritual life that was verified by the spiritual fruit that was seen in their lives. So here was a church, here was a group of people that were evidently grounded in the saving grace of God and were growing in the saving grace of God. When we come to verses 9 through 14, after giving thanks, the Apostle Paul turns from prayer to praise. And let's just read through this one more time before I ask my next question. Paul in verse 9 says, for this reason also, referring back to verses 3 through 8, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's prayer request is what? Well, we would very likely look at verse nine and say that Paul prays, prays that the that the Colossians might be filled with a knowledge of God's will and, of, excuse me, God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But I'd like us to go one step beyond that into verse ten, and ask the question: Why does Paul pray this prayer? What is the reason for this request? And he says, "So that you might walk." There's a Greek infinitive at the beginning of this sentence, and it's an infinitive of purpose, grammarians tell us. And it points us to the reason for which Paul prayed, verse 9, so that you will walk, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Very, very simply, Paul prays that Colossian believers would know God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they might walk. And that's just another way of saying live. Live. It has to do with just what we do on an everyday basis, just our going about and doing the stuff that each one of us have to do every day. That we might live, we might walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. So going back to my premise, Paul is praying that the Colossian believers and you and I might live doxologically. Now what does that look like? I mean, it's one thing to pray that, okay? I pray that you might live to the glory of God. I I pray that you might walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. But what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us some very clear instructions here. In verse 9, we see the first point. And it is to walk worthy, a believer must know the will of God. That was Paul's prayer, right? I pray that you might be filled with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If we are going to walk worthy of our Lord, if we are going to walk, walk worthy, to quote Paul from Ephesians, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, that is a calling to salvation, then we must know the will of God. The will of God is a frequent subject in Paul's letters, and most often it refers to the mind of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Again, there is a a very clear link in Scripture between knowing the mind of God and living it out. If you would, if you have your Bibles, if you'd go back to Romans chapter 12, and this is a very, very well-known passage, and this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is at a transition point. As Paul often does in his epistles, he spends... A a period of time focusing on doctrinal issues and then he comes and he takes that doctrine and he seeks to to help christians apply it so he says in chapter 12 verse 1 i urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of god and those mercies of god is what paul has unfolded in the first 11 chapters I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now catch the second verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we go over to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul, again, is exhorting believers to to live in a very distinct manner. And I'd love to read the first 14 verses for you, but time will not allow us to do that. I'll leave that up to you. But I would like you to look, please, at verses 15 through 17. Paul says, therefore, again, referring back to what he's just uh, just said in the first 14 verses. Therefore, be careful how you walk, same word as we had in Colossians, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Know the will of God, speak the word of God, sing the word of God, encourage and exhort each other with the word of God so that you might put on display the glories of God in your everyday life. So as we go back to Colossians, Paul's desire for the Colossian believers and for all of us is that the knowledge of God's will as revealed in Scripture would so completely fill and permeate our minds that our thoughts, that our intentions, our affections, our purposes, our plans are all brought into line or become consistent with God's will. If we make a practice of thinking God's thoughts after him, God's thoughts as revealed in the pages of Scripture, it will transform the way that we live our lives. So my first question in this part of 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 our worship service, in this part of the message, is this. Is the word of Christ richly dwelling in you? Is your daily life being fueled by the pure milk of the word? Now, as we look back at Colossians chapter 1, Paul just doesn't leave us with this prayer request and this goal. He provides for us four qualities that we can use as measuring sticks, if you will, to assess whether or not we are living in a way that pleases God in all respects. Look at verse 10. He says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Let's stop right there. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now, when you hear that phrase, bearing fruit, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's probably Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, that's helpful, right? That's helpful to understand what this looks like. But perhaps you'd like something a little bit more specific. Do you like lists? My wife loves lists. She is the queen of lists, at least in our household. Uh, She makes a list for everything, every event that's going to happen. She makes a list, and she checks off the list. Um, When she goes to the grocery store, she makes a list. But suffice it to say, she loves, with a capital L-O-V-E-S, lists. So how about a list? Take your Bibles and go over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 are filled with everyday opportunities to bear fruit, to put into action the fruit of the Spirit, and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's look at verse 5. Paul says, Therefore, consider, again, I'll leave you to to catch up with the therefore in the first part of that chapter. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is on, these things, on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. The first thing that we can do is to put off the old self. The Puritans called this mortification. We are to put off the characteristics of our life before Christ. And if you go down to verse 12, There is another part of that, because there's not only the putting off, but there is also the putting on. Look at verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And I'm going to leave you to read verses 15, 16, and 17. So there is a change of attitudes that is involved in walking or living in a manner worthy of the Lord. But a little more detail? Great. Let's go on. Verse 18. Wise, being subject to your own husband's. Verse 19, husbands, loving your wives, and Paul adds that little phrase in in Ephesians, is Christ loves the church. So husband and wife relationships, transformed husband and wife relationships, being fueled by the word of God, being empowered by the spirit of God. Verse 20, children, being obedient to their parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord, the apostle writes. Verse 21, fathers not exasperating their children, that they might not lose heart. So, so parent-child relationships. Verse 22, slaves, we would say today, we could apply that to employees. Employees in all things obey those who are masters on earth, not with external services, those who are mere, merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the lord rather than for men and you can catch up on verse 24 and 25 so basically employees serving those who employ them not just outwardly to please them but in the sincerity of their heart to please the lord chapter 4 verse 1 employees treating their em- employers excuse me and treating their employees with justice and fairness Keeping in mind, and he's speaking particularly here to believing employers, keeping in mind that they too have a master in heaven. Verse 2, being devoted to prayer. Verse 5, conducting ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. And he's speaking about those who are outside of Christ. Making the most of the opportunity. I think we get the idea, right? It gives us a pretty darn good place to start. I think if we've got a if we focusing on these areas, that is, folks, that's going to spill over. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord as we go back to the first chapter? By bearing fruit in every good work, and by putting that into practice in the specific ways that we've seen in Colossians chapter three and chapter four. Paul goes on, and again he says second secondly. You please God by increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in reference to the knowledge of God. One commentator wrote, What rain and sunshine are to the nurture of plants, the knowledge of God is to the growth and maturing of the spiritual life. And we've already talked about this somewhat, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But it is the knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture that is the spiritual food which fuels spiritual growth. So if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we must be bearing fruit in every good work, be increasing or growing in the knowledge of God. And if you notice, I've got those little INGs there. That means that this is an ongoing process. Now, I think verse 11 is very strategically placed by the Apostle Paul because when we come to this point doesn't what come isn't what comes to your mind what paul said in second corinthians chapter 2 verse 16 who is adequate for these things how can we do this we know our weakness we know our frailty we live with it we confront it every day who is adequate for these things so in verse 11, Paul says that if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we must be being strengthened with all power according to his that is God's glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. Paul, having asked that question in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, answered the same question back in chapter 3, verse 5. Because he turns right around and he says, our adequacy is from... God. It's not that we, are, that we are adequate in ourselves, Paul wrote, to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You and I, believers everywhere, have to contend, we have to fight with, against the influence of the world system, the weakness of our own sinful flesh, and the temptations of Satan. And in and of ourselves, we are absolutely helpless. If we are going to please God, we need an outside power source. And Paul here in verse 11 uses two Greek words which refer to power. The first one is dunamis or dunamao. And the second one is kratos. The the first one defines the ability or enablement. So in other words, he's praying that God would enable believers He would give them the ability to be strengthened with all power. That second word, in every instance except one in the New Testament, it refers to the power of God. Strengthened with all power according to, according to in the measure with, corresponding to God's own glorious power. Take just a moment and think about the power of God. Think about the power of God in creation. God spoke. And stuff came into existence. I say this a lot, but I speak and people fall asleep. You know, I mean, (laughs) there's no comparison. But God's word, his creative word, is unbelievably powerful. Think about the providence of God in everyday life. You know, sometimes when we're going someplace, especially when we're traveling, we're going someplace we've never been before, I think about all the people. And, you know, it's it's easy to kind of get lost in your own little circle, and you kind of know what's going on. But, you know, we go into a new city last, last fall. We had the privilege of going to the U.K. for a vacation. So, you know, we're in London for a little while. And we're traveling up uh, through, up into Scotland and, and Wales and these big cities and countryside. And I'm thinking, I get into a situation, just, I says, God knows everything about all these people. And not only does he know everything, but everything that's happening is being ordained by his divine providence. I mean, that just, my circuits blow pretty easy, I guess. Man, I'm just, it just pops all the circuits. I can't, I can't, I put, can't put my arms around it. But that's God's power. It's inexhaustible. Think about God's power and salvation and redemption. Think of what Christ accomplished on the cross. There is no way that we could reconcile ourselves to God, but God, by his great saving power through Christ, has provided perfect salvation for those who will believe. And if the strength given to us is... Somewhat in the measure. Paul says, according to his glorious might, if it's somewhat in the measure of of the strength of God, can we not, can we not, with that divine power, rise above everything and live to the glory of God? Paul goes on and gives us two purposes for this empowering us. He says, for the attaining of all steadfastness. One commentator said, this is a tenacity of spirit. I put it like this. This is divinely enabled stick You probably won't find that in your dictionary, but I think it works. You know, whether in persecution, whether in trials, whether in temptation, or whether facing false teaching, believers who are empowered by God's strength can stand firm. What did Paul write in Ephesians chapter 6? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So God empowers us so that we can have that divinely enabled stick to to persevere in seeking to live to the glory of his name. He also is, prays that we might be strengthened so that we might attain all patience. This is an attribute of God who is slow to anger, but this is, our re- this is our response to those who, are, who oppose. There's a self-restraint that doesn't hastily retaliate. And folks, this may be a quality that we're going to need more and more. That we respond graciously in the face of opposition. So a life that pleases God is marked by fruit bearing. It is marked by a growth in spiritual knowledge. It is, being, it is a life that is being strengthened by God's glorious strength. And lastly, verses 12 through 14... Is a, it is a life of thankfulness. Now, commentators, and depending on your translation, debate whether joyously should go with uh, the attaining of all steadfastness or patience or go to verse 12 with giving thanks. Either one is valid. I think that's why they're debating it. Uh, I kind of like the latter, and that's what the New American Standard has. Paul writes, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Fundamentally, what are we to be thankful for? Verse 12, a spiritual inheritance for God's salvation. Consider what we were. Paul says children deserving of wrath in Ephesians chapter 2, fully deserving the full measure of sin's wages, Death. Eternal separation from God. But because of the grace of God that has been shown in Christ, we have an inheritance. John wrote in the first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And notice this, verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 13, God has provided spiritual deliverance. He has delivered us. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has rescued us, Chrysostom, the ancient church father said, from Satan's tyranny of power. We who have placed our faith in Christ, in Christ alone, have been delivered from the power of Satan and the power of sin. And he has not only delivered us from Satan, he has not only given us the spiritual deliverance, but he has, the latter part of verse 13, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has given us a new citizenship. A kingdom that is ruled by God's beloved son. We have been set free to serve the king of glory and to glorify and enjoy him now and eternally. And God has done this to his own beloved son. In whom? that referring back to that last phrase of verse 13. The kingdom of his beloved son. In whom? That son of his, of his sending. The Lord Jesus Christ. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. How can we walk? How can we live in a way that's worthy of the Lord? How can we live in a way that pleases him in all respects? By bearing fruit. In the knowledge of God, and go back to Colossians chapter three and four, increasing in the knowledge of God, depending upon the Lord for divine strength, for the divine ability to stay the course when things are tough, and to do so with patience, to joyously, lastly, give thanks for the inheritance that He has qualified us to share in through the perfect work of Christ. And each one of us has been called, each one of us who has trusted in Christ has been called to respond to God's glorious and marvelous saving grace by living in a way that is worthy of the Lord in every facet of our lives. And we are to do so wherever He has put us. It may be in office, it may be at home, it may be in school, it may be in a retirement community. Wherever God has happened to place us, that is a sphere. That is the area that he has given to us in which to glorify him. I'd like to close with two passages, two passages from the Gospels. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Verses 14 to 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice who gets the glory. It's not us. Because none of it comes from us. It's all by the grace. It's all by the power of God. So as we close this morning, I close with one last question. Are you, by the grace and power of God, striving to live doxologically, striving to live to the glory of God? In our world where it seems, at least from a human perspective, that the darkness is increasing, may we be that salt and light. May we be that city set on a hill. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it hits us right where we live. And Father, we see our weaknesses, we see our frailties, we we see our inadequacies. We see the challenge that you've laid before us. And Lord, I have to confess We all have to confess that so often, so very, very often, we fall so very, very short of living in a way that would glorify you. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would encourage our hearts. Because, Father, having given us this command, having given us this instruction father you have provided for us the resources that we need in order that we might carry it out it's not by our might it's not by our power but it is by your spirit so father we ask this morning that you would help us as we strive to live in a way that that pleases you and lord we pray that as we open up your word and as we read it as we nourish ourselves through the pure milk of the word that you would continue to shine your light on those dark areas in our hearts and our minds that you would continue to shine your light upon those hidden things that are displeasing to you and and father that you would give us a heart of repentance and give us a heart of faith father that we might might trust you that we might understand that you have said that you are just and faithful to forgive us our sins when we confess them that you are just and faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, may your church, may your people bring glory to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.